You're listening to Bedroom Beethoven's, where notable music makers break down stories accompanied by songs and melodies documenting growth through their 10,000-hour journey. And me? Well, my name is Cello, your host. I am a bedroom Beethoven. <laughs> hey everybody, welcome to episode 148 of the podcast. Yeah, my name's Speech. I'm from the crew Arrested Development. It's a hip-hop crew from Atlanta, Georgia. We've been doing it for 30 years. Won some Grammys. Just released a new album. Um, a lot of collaborations from Big Daddy Kane to the Sugar Hill Gang to uh, Master Ace and King Crooked. Yeah, it's just a really great time. A.K.A. the original disciple of Lyrical Rebellion. Come on, stop it, stop it. (laughs) (laughs) Here, have a dollar. In fact, no, brother man, here, have two. Two dollars means a snack for me, but it means a big deal to you. Be strong, serve God only. Know that if you do, beautiful heaven awaits. Asked upon my rope for the first time. I saw a man with no clothes, no money, no plate, Mr. Wendell. Asked his name. No one ever knew his name, cause he's a no one. Never thought twice about spending on an old bum until I had the chance to really get to know one. Now that I know him, to give him money isn't charity. He gives me some knowledge, I buy him some shoes. And I think blacks spend all their money on big colleges. Still, most of y'all come out confused. Go ahead, Mr. Wendell. During this interview, Brother Speech calls the new album Swan Song. If this is indeed Arrested Development's last record, it caps a massive career, spanning three decades, and that contains some of the most interesting sounding and well-made hip-hop. The Rock and Roll Hall of Fame even named the Arrested Development Smash Tennessee one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Sharing the stage with such important figures such as Nelson Mandela, Minister Louis Farrakhan, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama, man, they're just... They're categorically definition of legends. I don't know how else to say it. And I don't take this position of interviewing these figures lightly, and I'm thankful that you guys are along for the journey. Don't forget, if you want to support the show, visit BedroomBeethovens.com or Patreon.com slash BedroomBeethovens if you want to access to early episodes. A few other perks, you know, you know, give a little, get a little. And when I post them, you know, just little things to show your support. Just give a few bucks. I can keep the show ad-free. It pays for hosting. And then I can just concentrate on the content, and that's what really matters. And as we head into 2022, I want to wish you guys peace, love, and prosperity. I started this podcast in 2019, and I'm lucky to begin my third year bringing you guys these stories. Up next, Arrested Development's own speech.
Now, I, you know, time is a very funny thing, right? Because I, I heard you say things like it's it's hard to find outlets for the OGs, you know, to cover the new music yeah, uh, by people who've been in the game for decades. And it's like, I remember when your group's follow-up album came out and it sold half a million copies and it wasn't considered a success. And that's if you right. do that now, that's Taylor Swift numbers in today's that's world. Taylor Swift numbers. That's Kanye West numbers, Drake numbers. That's like outrageous. Yeah. So I, I don't even want to ask you about COVID because times are strange enough as it is with that. Exactly. <laughs> Boy, times have changed. Yeah, yeah, and you know, with with uh, you know, with with Trump's era and and COVID and the mishandling of of, of police responsibility and black people dying, the, the one thing I can say is it's gotten the the militant music back on the airwaves. You know, Public Enemy released a new album. You see Rage Against the Machine touring again. Uh, you release an EP for the first time and you know, over a decade, you know, we got a new album and, you know, Chuck D can go on Instagram live and talk about the issues. You know, you can make hoodwinked or 16 bars, which is great, but there's nothing like recording a song with a message and getting that out into the world, huh? Well, I mean, first of all, it's my first passion. You know, music is by far my first passion. And I come from a family of entrepreneurs, but my mom in particular is a journalist. And so growing up with a mother who owns the largest black newspaper, always talking about black issues, always talking about it, even at the breakfast table, talking about solutions, talking about issues. Those are going to spill into your lyrics. And so not only do I love music, but I also love journalism. And I love the idea of uh, documenting an era of time with solutions, hopefully, and also viewpoints that are relevant to what's going on. And so to me, the best hip hop that's ever been created is hip hop that somehow captures the moment, you know, authentically of what was going on. And so, yeah. yeah that's all. And, and this podcast is aptly titled because when you made Tennessee, your studio was your bedroom. You were a literal bedroom Beethoven. That's a fact. That's a fact. And so many of my you know, number one hip hop artists do the same. You know, a lot of their biggest and best creations were done right there in their bedrooms. So the intimacy, the level of um, focus is unparalleled, you know, from past years and eras. Yeah. And I know you, you, you mentioned your mom has the largest African-American newspaper being printed and distributed. Um, but I want to take it back. Like, can you tell me not so much Milwaukee, Wisconsin, what was it like in Ripley, Tennessee? Was there a lot of good times in your youth? Oh, it's amazing. You know, I I grew up in a small town called Glimp, Tennessee, which is right outside of Ripley. Ripley was the big city, and that's very small, actually. <laughs> and Glimp is even much smaller. I, I don't know if Glimp has a thousand or more people in it, but long story short, it was it was extreme poverty, but we didn't think we were poor. And I spent my summers there. So my grandmother's house had no electricity um, in the beginning days, at least, of my youth. And we would use the bathroom in outhouse. We had well water for water. There was no plumbing. And it was just a very rural lifestyle. So everything was about nature. Everything was about you know relationships with my friends. And everything was about self-determination. My grandmother grew her own vegetables. Um, other neighbors grew different, I mean, other vegetables and they would exchange things. You know, she killed her own, uh, slaughtered her own animals for meat, made her own ice cream. I mean, it was just a world that was, um, for me, very 
life-changing and eye-opening. So if there were expectations for you to be self-sufficient, hardworking, honest, attend church, were you able to hit the mark on all those accounts or were there some rebellious periods or situations you got caught up in or you stayed pretty focused for the most part? No, no. I mean, when I was, when I was, um, you know, like from 13 to 16, 17, I definitely was more inclined to stay in the city. I didn't want to go see my grandmother as much. I was, you know, girl crazy. And I really was into like gangster hip hop. I was into, you know, just having fun. You know what I'm saying? And that was in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. That wasn't in Tennessee. So it was a different vibe. And that was sort of rebellious. Like I definitely was not conscious about black issues per se, even though my parents raised me on that. Like you just mentioned, I was rebellious against it and didn't really want to hear too much about it, you know? And I'll never forget there was a woman that came and spoke at my school during high school and she was a black history professor and she spoke on black history and a lot of the atrocities. And I felt she was out of place. I was like, yo, this is just down. I don't want to hear this nonsense. And so it's crazy that three, four years later, my whole life would change. And I was totally in line with what my mother and father were trying to teach me the whole time. And my, my whole career and my whole focus would be black freedom, you know, stuff like that. So it's very interesting how life changes. Sticking with that same age frame, your, your father was an entrepreneur. You're DJing in, in his clubs at around that age. I mean, you're a kid. How do you get people to take you serious? My work ethic. I mean, I was serious about it. So number one, the DJs back when I was 13, when I started, they weren't hip hop DJs. So they used to allow the music to fade out and then they would really craftfully and, and classily fade in the next record, but it wasn't on beat. And then I come from a hip hop era where I'm learning from those DJs, but also the likes of Grandmaster Flash in New York and Grandmixer DST and uh, Mixmaster Ice and all of these records that I'm hearing on hip hop. I had not been to New York yet, but I'm hearing it and I'm learning from it. I'm watching, you know, like um, Wild Style and Beat Street and, you know, um, Graffiti Rock and various shows that were showing the art of hip hop, which I wasn't able to see in first person yet. So I was able to teach the older DJs how to mix records on beat. So I was pretty valuable to a lot of the people. So they did take me seriously, even though I was young, because I was bringing a whole new style of, you know, really I was bringing hip hop to Milwaukee. Herbie Hancock grabbed Grand Mixer DXT when he was only 19 years old. And then they won a Grammy for a song that they only did in one recording session. Yeah. And Rocket, speaking of that song, I that was the first time I'd ever seen scratching in my entire life. Any DJ from that era will tell you the same unless they lived in New York and went to the Bronx or went to Brooklyn. And unless they were from that area, which obviously most DJs are not, you know what I'm saying? Um, most DJs in the world are not. So if you were around in that era and you were blown away by hip hop, more than likely, your first time ever seen Scratching Live was on the Grammys with Herbie Hancock's Rocket and Grammys to DST. That's insane. And also... Uh, DJ Kenny B is still in Southern Wisconsin and he does weddings now. And I think a, a, the majority of his clients don't realize what a legend he is in that area. He is an absolute legend. And Kenny B taught me not the hip hop style of DJing, but the the previous. And I probably wouldn't have ever gotten into DJing without him. He was 
by far older than me and put me under his arm and said, yo, let me teach you. And he did. And we became best friends. Me and Kenny B had a, a crew, Knights of the Turntables. And it was sort of based off of Knights of the Round Tables. Now, there was another crew called that, I think, from L.A., and we basically bit their name. <laughs> so, I mean, to be straightforward. And um, we never knew we would make it. And we didn't really make it from a national standpoint. But we were doing parties in Milwaukee under that name. And that was me and Kenny B and a guy named Special K, who now is named DJ Kimmett. And he's a beast on the turntables to this very day. And and how did concert promotion kind of come into the mix? Because you, you had a hand in bringing some, you know, D'Angelo, the Fugees, into different cities to perform, right? You know, for me, it was just a an extension of my love and my passion. So here I am, really one of the first hip-hop acts to break out worldwide from Atlanta. Um, back in these days when, when we were dropping, there was not a Babyface South yet. There was no Outkast. There was no Goody Mob out yet, I should say. I'm not saying they weren't born yet. Being that innovator in that, that, that city with, with hip-hop that was reaching a world level, I really wanted to bring other acts that were killing it. And some of them were outcasts and Goody Mob. I brought Guru. I brought um, Farside. But I also mixed it up. A lot of, like Fishbone, I brought them. I brought Queen Latifah, um, Erica Badu, uh, The Roots. I mean, so many people we brought through Atlanta, you know, to expose people to this great music. And so to me, it was an extension of the love I have for hip hop. That's amazing, man. And, and on Spotify, Citizen King still gets a quarter of a million listeners a month. Better Days is still a jam. You know what's funny, Citizen King? Because I used to get blamed by some people in Milwaukee that when I blew up with Arrested Development, I didn't come back and help out anybody from my city. And they just were misinformed. Because the truth is, is that the first groups I signed, it was a group called Gumbo which was from Milwaukee, a brother named Falani Faluke, um, Geechee Gamba, and a, and a sister named uh, Paulette initially, and then Deanna Dawn from Milwaukee, and then Citizen King, also from Milwaukee, DJ Brooks and them. And so point being, they ended up getting signed to, I think, Warner Brothers it was, and had a couple hits. My shoes, my toes are busted. My kitchen says my bread is folded. I got a good job at the dollar store. People initially were saying I didn't come back and do anything for the city. And, you know, like I said, the only groups I signed was from the city. That's kind of unfair, though, for them to put that responsibility on you, even though it wasn't true. Yeah, it wasn't true. And, you know, I understood it to some extent because of how hard we worked in Milwaukee to try to get known. Like, Milwaukee had no notable people in the music industry other than Al He He had come from there, but no hip-hop people were coming from there at the time. And so all of us were trying to figure out a way to break through. And if you our student of hip hop at that time, really it was East Coast and West Coast. There was no Midwest. There was no Common. There was no Kanye. It was no, you know, no ID. There was none of that stuff. No Detroit scene, no Eminem, none of that stuff yet. So, you know, people from the Midwest were just basically ignored in hip hop. And um, so I, I got their urgency, but like I said, I think they just didn't realize that, you know, First of all, I can't control how big or small any of these groups would be. But second of all, 
um, I did do that. You know, I did reach back and 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 sign people from the the Milwaukee side. And the the man responsible for the keys and Alicia Keys and Child in Destiny's Child is Mr. Michael Malden. How did how did things kind of begin with him? Because I think Jermaine Dupri was only fifteen years old at the time, and I, I was wondering maybe there was some talks for Arrested Development to be signed to So So Deaf because ten years ago. Jermaine Dupri produced a track for Mary J. Blige called Everyday People. And I wonder if he was thinking about you guys that whole time. Yeah. Um, Jermaine and I were friends. I mean, I, I worked on music with him at his house and, you know, we did songs together. And Michael Malden, on the other hand, well, first I'll back up. So So Deaf wasn't around yet. So Jermaine at that time, when we came out, he had produced Crisscross, Cross, which it, they weren't on So So Deaf because it wasn't out. And he had um, produced a group called Silk Times Leather. And that was sort of his claim to fame at the time. And um, yeah, his father was, he was a manager for a group, famous group, Brick, um, who was awesome. And basically he wanted to manage us. And um, that's how we sort of kicked off into this industry. Without Michael Malden, we probably would have never gotten, you know, discovered. Yeah, that's, that's definitely a wild ride. And, and I think it also must've been weird to see like crunk music saturate Southern radio when just a few years before hoopla was released, y'all were on the same record label TVT. So I kind of get where you wanted Vegabond to release all your stuff. Cause a lot of these labels have identity crises. They just kind of ride the wave. They did. And so it definitely took over and it still is like, I mean, it's now trap or whatever you want to call it now, but yeah, that whole scene, but pretty much became what the South would be the most famous for in, in time. Labels like Ichiban and and TVT and these various small labels labels, they were the the outlet in order to get this music out there. They were willing to just put it out, and you know it took off. And you you wrote a letter to Michael Jackson once. Do you remember what it said? I don't. I don't even remember writing one to him. Wow. <laughs> you never wrote a letter to Prince, though, did you? <laughs> you know what? I met Prince, and we we talked back and forth or communicated back and forth for us to meet numerous times. And Prince was a, he was an interesting dude, my favorite artist, by the way, but he was the type. And I learned this later, but it was too late when I learned it, that when he summons you, you're supposed to drop everything and go to him. And I don't function that way. I'm not that type of person. Meaning if I have something then I just have to do that something that I have to do. And then I'll hook up with you when I'm done. And I don't look at people as idols per se. I look at them as just people. So as much as I absolutely adore Prince's music, I wasn't under the perception that I needed to jump when he said jump. So he'd asked me to come hang out and I told him I was mastering, which I was. And he got a little vindictive with me. So the next time we were scheduled to hang out, he wouldn't show himself. So we were at Paisley Park and um, he stayed behind a, a two-way mirror and watched me the entire time. And and uh, the the band was, you know, New Power Generation at the time. And they're telling me, yo, he's here. He just left right before you got here. And he just, he's standing behind that mirror just looking at you. And so, I said, oh, okay. So he never did come out. Then we finally met um, in person and really talked. Uh, for his quote-unquote birthday. He didn't celebrate birthdays, but he had these huge celebrations, week-long celebrations at Paisley Park. And um, I was performing with, in my opinion, the best bass player alive. His name is Victor Wooten. 
and I was performing with Victor Wooten and we all got a chance to connect and we actually talked that time and it was great. Oh yeah, Bella Fleck. Absolutely. Exactly. Bella Fleck and the Fleck Tones and that whole movement. I, I know that Prince is the only artist to turn down Weird Al Yankovic to parody one of his songs. And oh, wow. he's the only one out of out of everyone that he's parodied. And we don't need to get into the um you know, like thirty years ago, uh when you when you sampled Prince, we all know the story there. But do you feel like he was being justifiably protective of his music, or do you think that was a lesson kind of harsh for a young man naive in the music industry such as yourself? Because you didn't know the. It, it's almost like you go to court for the TV show Arrested Development, but you wait five seasons for the show to get super popular, and then and then you sue them. You know, it, it seems like it was kind of dirty a little bit. Well, at the time back. 30 years ago or so, I did feel it was dirty because first of all, you know, he charged a hundred thousand dollars for the word and I didn't take any melody from his, from his music. I just took the word. So I felt like that was much, but as I've grown in, in, in this industry, I realized that actually he did me a favor by simply charging a set amount of money, as opposed to owning part of the copyright and owning part of the master, owning the publishing you know, he took a little bit of money and moved on. And the, the record made way more than $100,000. So at the end of the day, I think it was great. But at the time, I felt it was harsh. And the, the record wasn't as big as it would become 30 years later. I mean, it did go up the charts and then it went down one notch when I got the call from his office. <laughs> but um, nonetheless, I mean, the song goes on in history and he doesn't own part of the song. And that's that's pretty great for me, you know, so I'm actually grateful. There was another song that I'd sampled, Play in the Sunshine, from his Sign of the Times double album. And it was supposed to be on the song Children Play with Earth. And in fact, it was in the song. And we mixed it, we mastered it, and we were putting it out. But he wanted 50% of the song. And so we went back in the studio, and this is before there was automation and Pro Tools and all this. And we had to re put the, the the session up, re you know, calibrate all of the levels and everything, and take the sample out and put the song out without the sample. So the song that everybody hears on the three years, five months, two days in the life of album that's called Children Play with Earth used to have a print sample in it, and the one that everyone has heard actually doesn't. So we did that because of his strict rules about sampling. Well, Sly Stone was in his late 40s when you sampled a bit of him, which is, he was still a fairly young man. Did he ever have issues with it? Not at all. Now, Sly Stone didn't own his publishing, unfortunately, for him. Um, Michael Jackson owned his publishing. So um, we always paid my, what's called My Jack Music um, for that sample. <laughs> and, um, you know, I'm grateful that he didn't have an issue. I met Sly. I met uh, the Family Stone as well, all of the various members as we were out and about touring and stuff like that. And, and you're joining me in a very exciting time in your life because you, you have this new album. And next year, in 2022, we're going to be celebrating the 30th anniversary of three years, five months, and two days in the life of. Do you have any special plans for that, like a special vinyl you know, or anything? Yes and no. So it's an interesting time for us. We scheduled... Well, what I'm planning to do is a three-prong tour. So... The tour is celebrating three things. It's celebrating the 30th year anniversary of the debut. It's celebrating our new album for the F in Love, which is also likely our last album. And then it's celebrating the album before that, which is called Don't Fight Your Demons, which we planned on touring this year, but COVID 
talked to us and said no. <laughs> so COVID totally smashed all of those plans. And, you know, so now we have three things we're celebrating in 22. And, um, you know, I'm grateful that we're doing it all, but that's about it. We have vinyl records for Don't Fight Your Demons, for, for the F and Love, and for Three Years, Five Months album. So it's a it's a good look. We'll we'll have some special things going on, and the tour is going to include songs from all of those classics. So uh, I just on a personal note, "Don't Fight Your Demons" is amazing, like ten out of ten. Thank you, thank you. Whoa, I love that. I love that rating. Thank yeah, you. the new album it needs to marinate with me a little bit before I can place it. But I, I yeah. listen to "Don't Fight Your Demons" at least once a week, all the way through. Amazing. Well, thank you. That that means the world to me. I love that record. The textures are so colorful, so amazing. And I'm really proud of it. And that's funny because when we were about to release it, I was actually depressed, which I talk about on the record. But because I knew it was brilliant, but I also felt like it wasn't going to get any airplay, any real traction, because generally speaking, the industry has been pretty cold to conscious music and conscious hip hop in particular. So when it did so well, I was thoroughly impressed and thoroughly encouraged. And in fact, I talk about it on a song called Do It Up uh, on the new Don't um, uh, for the F and Love album. Um, the song Do It Up talks about that. And that's, that's exactly how I felt. Yeah, because I know sometimes if you're being conscious or you're making that militant music, like Public Enemy was VH1's most influential rap group of all time. I bet you that's something to do with Flavor Flav making VH1 a lot of money. Like you have to make the label money. Well, it's that, but it's you know what's what's the funny reality about conscious music is it made a lot of money. In other words, Public Enemy sold millions of records per record almost. I mean, their first one was around 500,000. Our we sold 4 million records. Our second album sold 500,000. Our our Unplugged sold 500,000. I say all of that to say that's a lot of money. We got a $70,000 advance for three years, five months, two days in the life of. So if you think of $70,000 advance, our Tennessee video was $19,000. So we're really talking about under two, $300,000 for all the videos we did for that entire record. And it sold 4 million albums and they made most of that money. I say all of that to say I did a documentary that you know about called Hoodwinked and um, also called The Nigga Factory, where there's a deeper agenda on why they do not want conscious music and conscious media to become mainstream and to become too popular. They they actually control it more than we would like to believe. And um, they purposely make sure that they sort of keep the ignorant level pretty high when it comes to Black media in particular. And uh, because black media, when they get conscious, it usually is rebellious against a lot of the status quo realities in America. Well, I, I guess removing the the profitability of these ventures, you started the group because you saw the state of black people throughout the world in a state of arrested development, and you wanted to be part of the solution. So in retrospect, over the past three decades, do you feel like you've accomplished that? or Or is this just an uphill climb with no end result in sight? <laughs> yeah, I think it's both. So, yeah, I think we definitely have accomplished that. I mean, I can't tell you the number of people that say my worldview was changed when I heard Mr. Wendell or my worldview was changed when I heard People Every Day or Tennessee or when I listened to Three Years album, you know. Um, and even to this very day, you know, people, younger people say my worldview was changed by hearing Don't Fight Your Demons, you know. 
I know it changes people. Obviously, the type of change where you see this huge difference, you know, no, I mean, it's an uphill battle that's consistent. But I mean, gosh, we're not Martin Luther King Jr., and yet he did a lot of amazing things. And yet, you know, if you look at the culture, there's so many telltale signs that it's worse than it was when he was doing things. And then there's some things that are growth. So I have to look at it, you know, with with a good perspective, too, that it's it's tough to change things for the long haul. And I think that that brings us right to the brand new album. And I want to give you the floor to tell the people all about yeah, it. Yeah. So For the F in Love is sort of our swan song album. I mean, I say sort of because I'm not sure yet, but <laughs> part of me has said this will be our last record. And long story short, I mean, this literally is a celebration of hip hop. So everything from Master Ace rocking on there, um, Fat Man Scoop, Del P from Philadelphia, um, Big Dad, the Big Daddy Kane rocking on there, the Sugar Hill Gang, the Moni Love. I mean, so many G Love and Special Sauce. I mean, so many fantastic artists. Tony Momrell out of uh, the UK. That it's really a celebration of hip hop, and at the same time, it tells a lot of the stories of Arrested Development that have never really been told and expressed by me. I'm not dead yet, I'm alive The purpose for me is high Like the clouds in the sky It's the abstract Not Q-tip But the things I want for my life That sometimes don't match up With the reality I strive for More moss gone by Pandemic still alive No gigs are inside Honey, on me, money is tied Right? But I'm feeling sort of nice And it's great Cause the demons have been wrecked the fans To take another take At this collective Ironically named Arrested Development Everybody The reason everything was so Organic back then is we didn't have expectations when we made this music. We didn't know the same. Slow and a song like that was going to be that. We didn't know. We don't know. We just, Listen, I'm just happy it happened, and I'm just happy to be here, man. That's pretty much it, really. All right. Yeah, and I also want to note the videos are awesome. The fact that Master Ace and Big Daddy Kane are actually coming out to these video shoots, that's yeah. the cherry on top. It really was the cherry on top. I agree with you. Like, first of all, we're all busy, but... You know, this is an Arrested Development project. It's not a Big Daddy Kane project. He's featured and we love him. It's not a Master Ace project. He's featured. We love him. So when you get Bumpy Knuckles, Master Ace, any of these people that's willing to come through, shoot the video with you, it's just an honor. And it's and especially during this age of COVID and everybody's in different spots. It, it would be different if we all lived in New York. You know, a lot of the videos that we see with posses and stuff, they all come from the same boroughs or at least the same city. We don't. We're here in Atlanta. So it was pretty hard, you know, and Kane came through in the clutch, which I'm very grateful. Yeah, there you go. So I, I just want to plug, uh, you know, victoryspot.org. I want to plug your documentary, 16 Bars and Hoodwink, the three-part docuseries. The solo album's out now. Uh, Arrested Development album, out now. Uh, it features Freddie Fox, Big Daddy Kane, like we discussed. And catch you guys New Year's Eve live at the Salvage Station in North Carolina and overseas in 2022. So, Brother Speech, I'm grateful for your time. And I, I hope that 2022 is just another banner year for yourself personally and professionally. I, I appreciate you. Appreciate you too, man. It was a great interview. You're, you're, you do your thing, man. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks. Thanks.